Hello and welcome to Screen Cleaning. I'm Jeff Simpson. And I'm Colt Wessinger. And we are here each and every week on BYU Radio to give you the very best in entertainment. One of the ways that we do that is we talk about movies that are coming out and we try to focus on the good. And we've seen several new movies that are out this weekend, right, Yeah, Cole? it's been a couple of weeks since we've really done a reviews episode because 2020 has been unkind to new movies. Yes, yes. But that those will come later on in the show. We've got Rod Gustafson, a good friend of ours, who's going to help us out with that. And today we have Mickey Randall here with us. Because we've reached a turning point Uh, on our show, uh, and Mickey's going to be a big (laughs) part of that. Now, why have we reached a turning point, Cole? Because we're talking about the horror book, The Turn of the Screw. Okay, but not just The Turn of the Screw, but the many adaptations of this Henry James novella, including one that is out on Netflix right now, Mickey, what is it called? The Haunting of Bly Manor. Ooh. And there was an adaptation Mm -hmm. earlier this year in movie form, The Turning, which I watched. And also a 1961 film uh, starring Deborah Kerr, or Kerr, depending on how you pronounce it, called The Innocents. Which Jeff watched. So we kind of divided and conquered, uh, but we all started off. By reading the book first. Yes. Right? Because that's important. Yes. And it, it, this also this also depends on how you define read, right? <laughs> because I'm not a purist in that I still consider listening to the book reading the book. And, you know, because I am I do voiceovers myself, I've, I've got to say that, right? Yeah, you, you're in the business of reading audiobooks, and so you're a fan of I, – I honestly – I'm a big fan of audiobooks myself. I also listened to this book. Mickey has the book here yes, with her. Yes, I read it like a there normal person. Okay. <laughs> Just well, kidding. I'm not sure how I'm supposed to take that. Jeff, you're a busy man. <laughs> and I've tried, right. to, I've tried to sit down and read the book I think either three or four times. And this last time, I made it the farthest into the book before I realized if I don't listen to this, I won't get through it in time. So then I had to listen to it on a podcast and speed it up a little bit. It is rather dense. So <laughs> I, if I were to revisit this, I would definitely go the audiobook route. I'm surprised that I made it through listening because at, there was a specific time where it legitimately put me to sleep Cole. trying to listen through. But I rewound back. I caught. I I was awake and listening to every precious minute of this book. So the turning point for you was that it it turned you from being conscious to unconscious. Yeah, it was in chapter okay. fourteen or so out of twenty four. Mm-hmm. Okay. When I woke up, it was chapter twenty, and I realized I should probably go back a couple. So the basic premise of the novella is that you've got this governess who's being interviewed for this job by this really horrible uncle who has inherited this niece and nephew from these parents that have died. And he doesn't really care how qualified she is or is not. He just wants somebody to watch out for these kids and not bother him at all so that he can continue his wasteful philandering life. And uh, so she falls in love with these kids immediately 
Until little things start happening around the house, she starts seeing things that may or may not be there, mm. and the children start exhibiting really bizarre behavior that she's not quite sure how to deal with, and then she starts to find out a little bit about the history of Bly Manor. Dum dum dum. Yes. So there are some really good bones here, right? Some really good parts. Absolutely. And I've got to say, though, there is a little bit of a letdown right off the bat because the way that this book is set up really leads you to believe that you're about to hear or read the scariest thing you've ever heard or read. It's kind of unfortunate. Like, I I do love the framing device of everyone sitting around the campfire. Well, like, fireplace. They're in... At Christmas a, time. At Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> Scary ghost stories and tales of those. Well, Christmas is long, long ago. But, um, yeah, so it's Christmas time. Everyone's, like, telling a story. They're all trying to one-up each other. Like, no, I've got a scarier story. No, I've got a scarier... So the whole book starts by saying, no, I've got the scariest story that has ever been told. And so then you got to expect the scariest story you've ever heard. Mickey, do you feel like you read the scariest story you've ever read? Oh, absolutely not. (laughs) Maybe at the time when this was written... Then it would have been the scariest thing I've ever read, but and the the bit but of, not now the bit of one upsmanship they use is like the last unheard story in their little conversation had one scary kid in peril, <laughs> and then they're like, no, 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 you know what's scarier than one kid? <laughs> Two, Two kids. kids in peril. Yes, if you, if the one ante. if one turns the screw a little bit, the then two will turn it even more, and that's where we get the title. Like it's just turning the screw of putting kids in danger. Yeah. Do you guys feel, I mean, picture, try picturing you read this book when it first came out. The 1800s. Do you feel like you would have been spooked back then? Maybe. Maybe in the environment if it was, you know, sitting by the fire, Mm. feeling all creepy. That's a good point. The environment has a Mm -hmm. lot to do with it. If you're brushing your teeth, getting ready, listening to it at one and a half (laughs) speed, maybe not so much. Right. I I was sitting at the gym, like, yeah, and just having this on in the background. Yeah. But if you're sitting alone in front of a fireplace in the dark and maybe even somebody else is telling you this story in a very effective way. And like it was real. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like it actually happened. The narrator sets it up like, oh, this is my sister's friend as the governess? Or was it like his sister I don't remember. Which is how every urban legend is told. This happened to my uncle's dog, you know. (laughs) Um, Anyway, so do you guys, do you think that there are any aspects of it that are scary and that still hold up today? I think the the best part is the ambiguity. Okay. At the end because this this book is famous for its ending that every adaptation has done some played with, with, right? Yeah. yeah, so is she crazy or not is the question cuz she's seeing these objectively dead people. She's seeing ghosts. Yeah. So is she seeing the ghosts or are the kids like playing a trick on her? Are they actually evil? Are they like trying to console her what what is that relationship and when it's a book i think there's much more ambiguity because or maybe i wasn't paying attention because (laughs) there's there's less being told there's less being explained whereas when you see it in front of you you like can't miss it when something's happening mickey what do you think do you think she's crazy or do you think there are actual ghosts that are haunting this bly manor Mm, that's a tough question my answer might be a little skewed by the fact that i've just watched the haunting of bly manor Uh aha but i based on the book i like to think she was crazy really no ghosts 
Well, except for the end, right? Which I don't want to give away. But that could have been in her mind, yeah, you know? it could have been in her but, mind. But the thing is... I, depending on what I adaptation think, you, I'm not sure if we should be worried about spoiling something that's so old it's in the public domain. It's a hundred year old book. Like the last chapter is what we should be talking about here. Sure, because that's where it gets good. But it depends on what you're if if you're watching the movie or reading the book. Because in the movie, she con- if if she if it's all in her mind, then she con the timing is suspect because she conjures up the image of this guy Peter Quint, who was the chauffeur or the the valet to. The uh, which we would call valet, I guess, but they call valet because they're British, right? Um, she conjures up this guy, Peter Quint, before she sees You're his right. photograph in the attic. So the timing on that is really suspect. But then is that that well, was in your that movie? In the, book in the too, innocence, though. in the innocence. Okay. But then also. Um, the children keep saying that I don't see anything that you're seeing. And you don't know if they're just taking her for a ride or if they truly don't see anything. The ending of the movie The Innocence would lead you to believe that they really don't see anything. And maybe it's all in your head. But but in the book, the little girl many times like looks like she's definitely sees something like hmm. she like the, the governess and the little girl have this connection where she knows that she sees him and she's just trying to get her to. To admit it in front of someone else, namely the the other keeper, the other adult in the room, Mrs. Gross. Yeah. I also love how um, she goes on the whole time about how much she loves these kids. And both in the book and in the movie, I thought, these kids are kind of little brats. <laughs> I don't know. So that would that is what would make lead me to believe that maybe there is some possession going on there. Maybe there are some ghosts at Bly Manor because... Otherwise, those are just a couple of rotten kids. Hmm. Well, in the show, there's for sure ghosts, and they're real. But they do take the ambiguity out of ah. the book. They, which, and in some some cases, I do enjoy that. Right? It's nice to explain why there are ghosts, right, and why sure. why blind man blind manners haunted. But it kind of ruined it. I think, in terms of being scary. There there are some bigger themes here that we won't really get into for obvious reasons if you've read the book or seen some of these adaptations. But it it revolves around that ambiguity and and what what the history of this governess is and maybe some things that she's trying to uh, repress. And, uh, yeah, but Cole, what do you think? You said in your version she's definitely crazy. Um, you think? No, I they I go back and forth because okay. there are some conflicting things. But here. in in the how in the Bly Manor, the new Netflix version, mm-hmm. there's definitely ghosts. Oh, absolutely! In and the, they tell you how they go, how they got there. <laughs> in the turning, they try to have it both ways. Instead of being ambiguous, like it could be either way, they literally just give you two different endings. Uh, choose your own adventure is what it feels like because one of them ends kind of like the end of Inception with the little uh, spinning. No, top. no, no, because that's kind of ambiguous. Like okay. here, the turning, the 2020 movie from January of this year, back when movies were coming out in theaters. Uh, there's an ending where she's going crazy. Like there's an ending where there were ghosts and she grabs the kids and they try to leave, and then she like wakes up like it was a dream. We go back to like a point earlier in the movie mm. and then we get this like alternate ending where oh mm. she's actually crazy because her mom like they invent this whole separate plot where the governess's mom is in a mental hospital and then she like 
goes to the mental hospital and she looks and I think that her mom is actually her, like she was crazy. So and it then sounds, it ends. Like, sounds like we need to skip the turning. It's pretty bad. Like okay. the turning until we get to that other ending is what it, it really feels tacked on. It's a pretty decent atmospheric. Like they, it, Finn Wolfhard, the kid from Stranger Things, that's in just about everything, is in this. Yeah. Like, and and the little girl is great, and the governess is great. Like the acting deserves a much better movie than what the turning ended oh, up being. Mm, that do is you too guys, bad. Do you guys feel like this story is worthy of all of the adaptations? Or let me let me rephrase that question. What is it about this book that has has brought on so many different adaptations of this story. The staying power has got to be the ending, I guess. Like, that's where it sticks around. But at some point, it's just because it's old. Like, why do we read anything in English class? Because it's a classic because it was the first to do something. We want to feel fancy. Uh, Sometimes right. we want to <laughs> we stick up our pinky and uh, look like we're a little more sophisticated than we actually are. Right? I've, I've always been of the opinion that just because it's old doesn't mean it is good and worthy of being studied. And I think the turn of the screw is a great example of that. Like, yes, maybe it was the first to do something. And if you're a horror fan, you should read it and know where you're coming from. But it's not the best. It's not right. good. I will also say The Haunting of Bly Manor is based on the work of Henry James. So oh, it's not just The Turn of the Screw. Oh. It's definitely mainly The Turn of the Screw. But it kind of made me curious about some of the other things he's written. Yeah, absolutely. So now let me ask you guys this. So we talked we talked about whether or not the book is scary. Were these various adaptations scary? Uh, so mine has scary moments. It's a 2020 horror movie. There's some jump scares. The ending is terrible. Um, Jeffrey, yours, I, the more I read the book, the more I remembered that I had seen The Innocents before. Our idea was that we were each going to bring like a different adaptation. I've definitely watched The Innocents, and that one definitely is scary because it is. she is put through the dang ringer in that movie. Yeah, and she sees some pretty terrifying things, other things that, you know— I, and I love how they don't always, you know, blast the music when they're telling you that you're supposed to be scared here. Which sometimes, the definitely does. Sometimes she just sees like a shadow, like briskly walking past her. And she has to think, did I just see something there? Which has happened to me in my own house, you guys. <laughs> it's, it's a super trippy moment when you think you see something walk past you in your house. Um but it is scary because the the kids are good actors and they're good at being scary. And uh, they just are so good at using shadow and dissolving. And they're just some really good techniques that are put to use here in this movie. And again, some really creepy images of dead people just like standing on a marsh and just kind of being there, not with any scary music. So it makes it even creepier the fact that there's no music because it's just like, Oh, there's a dead person just like hanging around there. And talking about something Sounds creepy. being yeah. old, like not necessarily good because it's old. But if you're a fan of the genre, you really should get to know what's old because that kind of a scene very much inspired other even movies that are based on completely other books. Like The Woman in Black has a lot of those scenes yeah. where like just out on the marsh, there's a shadow. And yeah. like when you're doing gothic horror you need to pull a little bit from The Turn of the Screw because this mm-hmm. is where a lot of it is coming from. Well, The Haunting of Bly Manor was definitely creepy. It wasn't very scary. It's like, oh, so there's nine episodes, each an hour long. I think I counted two jump scares in the whole thing. 
Which Not is, that that equates to scary, but... But if if this is kind of the second season of this anthology of the haunting of such and such, right? Mm-hmm. The the first season had a lot of jump scares. Yeah, and it was very scary. Was scary monsters, scary ghosts in that one. This one... Not so much. I mean, it's a little creepy. There are some ghosts walking around. There are some people walking, you know, through the the dark mansion. But not a lot of uh, really scary stuff. And, you know, not to give anything away, but it, it ends fairly happy. Oh, that's interesting. Odd. That would definitely be a difference, right, from the book because, yeah. mm-hmm. as we mentioned, the the book really ends and is known for its ending the ending of mine was also really different. Another one of the differences that the turning had is that Mrs. Gross, the the other adults around here, right? It really, the book comes down to four characters yeah. on quote yeah. unquote on screen. It's a book, whatever. Um, not including their the mysterious uncle or the ghosts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, there's four main characters: two kids, the governess, and this Mrs. Gross character, who is her ally in the book. Like all the way through this book, I was picturing before I watched the the movie. Like, she's trying to comfort her, and she's there, and she's, like, a friend that she goes to and whatnot. Mrs. Gross in The Turning is this very creepy old lady that's, like, just as against her as you feel like the kids are sometimes. Which was an odd change. I guess it worked, but, like, yeah, it, it was an odd just thing to change. There wasn't much different from The Innocence and the book, uh, other than the fact that, you know, they hired Truman Capote to do the script and kind of modernize the language a little bit, which I appreciated. Oh, because yeah, yeah. So this was in the 60s. When is yours taking place? About the same time as the book. So they really they really didn't stray too much from the book. But the movie, I felt, was just so much scarier than the book, so much easier to follow and the acting was just fantastic. Mine took place, again, coming out in 2020, very specifically in the early 90s. Like, it, it didn't give us a title card up on the screen, like, this is 1994. But the first thing you see of the governess is she's watching TV and Kurt Cobain just died. Like, it's a very, like, oh, put you in the place sure. of the... And she's listening to, like, grunge 90s rock as <laughs> the soundtrack. And I have no idea why, other than maybe they didn't want her to have a cell phone, so you just pick sometime maybe. before 2010. That's to... how I felt about Blind Manor. It's 1987 the why? whole time. And I was like, yeah, it must be because they don't want there to be a, some cell phones in there. Interesting. But no other reason. Yeah, my governess specifically like goes to a payphone to call her old roommate <laughs> once, and you're like, oh, I guess the reason it's the 90s is just because it can't be yeah. the 2000s now. It's always fun to see Ugh. a payphone phone in a movie though right yeah unless you're watching bill and ted face the music um (laughs) but the next the last question i have here for us then is what do you feel like is the best format or the best medium to tell this story yeah because mine was a tight 90 minutes just cheap horror movie to make yours is a classic of horror cinema but we've also got got nine episodes a series we've got a physical book we've got an audio book i certainly felt like it was easier to listen to the book than to read it, but I felt like it was easier to watch the movie than to listen to the audiobook. So that's my opinion. Mm. I like that that tight 90-minute black-and-white, beautifully shot format. 
That sounds like the best to me. Bly Manor is great in other terms. Like, they really elaborate on Mrs. Gross, on Peter Quint, on Miss Jessel, on the kids. We find out exactly what happened to Miles at school, right? Mm. We know the background of the governess. By the way, in the book, what the heck? We get, like, five chapters worth of mystery of, like, why was he expelled? Mm -hmm. And it never pays off really well. Yeah. Like Then you should watch The Haunting of Bly Manor because they'll tell you exactly what happened and like, why he did it. Okay, tension is okay <laughs> if you have a reason for the tension. Like, I don't want to be told it, right. but I also want there to have been maybe some like build up some mystery that he was like really evil Other or something. Other than just he was saying potty words. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Cole? I, I would really love, because of the framing device at the beginning of the story, I would love to hear a dramatic reading. So the audiobook version that I listened to was not the best production quality. And this is what happens when something enters into the public domain, is that anyone can just read it. Um, and you could make money off it, I guess. But like, there's this, this stock library of things that are in the public domain that you can just go to and listen to. And it reminds me, growing up, I listened to a lot of audiobooks, more so than I read books myself, because my mom is blind. And so she listens to audiobooks naturally just mm-hmm. all the time, because reading Braille is a little bit more arduous than just sure. reading books uh, in front of you when you use your eyes. Um, so we listened to a lot of audiobooks, and a lot of the audiobooks we listened to were the free material for the blind yes. that was also produced by lower quality. Like, not everyone can be Jim Dale or Jeffrey <laughs> Simpson. Like, they get just anyone to kind of read these books so that they can have this giant library. And that's a really, really cool thing that they do for the blind, and I'm very grateful for it. But but it's not the best quality of audiobook reader. And the same thing happened with the version that I listened to of this book in the public domain, not the best quality. I would love to hear a really like different actors, but reading the the words on the book, because I think the book more so than movies can keep ambiguity better, right? If you actually see ghosts, mm-hmm. it's tough to make it seem like, Oh, maybe it's all in her head. Like it, it's tough to, it's harder to play with that when it's a movie in front of you. Whereas in a book, I think that this works a little bit better. But if you want a good example of of that working well, you got to go and watch 1961's The Innocents because mm-hmm. they did a good job with that adaptation. That's the one to watch. Yep. Speaking of horror book adaptations, when we return, we wanted to talk about some other horror movies that maybe you didn't know were books. But uh, and we'll even talk about is the book better than the movie or is the movie better than the book, which is the which is a super old argument to have. And uh, we're going to keep it going here on Screen Cleaning. That's up next. The people here. They're born here. They die here. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is certainly a horror classic book, and when it made the transition to movie in the Universal Monster era, it certainly cemented itself as one of the greats. This is Screen Cleaning, and we're talking about horror books and movies today. And, of course, this movie started out as a book, as you said, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, 
And the movie really strays from the book in a lot of ways. Yes. Uh, if you're looking for a more straight adaptation, uh, I wouldn't say I would recommend the R-rated Kenneth Branagh's Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Right. That came out shortly thereafter Bram Stoker's Dracula when everyone was trying to yeah. make that new turn in horror. But Frankenstein, the movie, is certainly iconic, and you can certainly understand why that scene is iconic and why the movie is still so beloved after all these years. But they made a very severe adaptational difference because the first thing you notice when you start reading the original book is that the whole format is written in letters and it's not really like a conventional story being told. And so when they made the movie, they just made a normal movie. It reminds me of World War Z, which was a very recent zombie movie that was trying to just... I mean, in in the mid-2000s, late-2000s, any zombie property that existed was being snatched up and, like, churned out. Yeah. But the World War Z, the book, is written in, like, diary entries and letters in that same kind of format that really only works when you're reading a book and you can't really. But, but it works really well when you're reading, and then when you make a movie, it's just any other zombie movie. All right, I'm going to go through a few movies here, and you guys tell me if you knew that these movies were based on books. They're not super obscure, but for instance, Jaws was based on a book. Yes, I've read that book before, Me so too. I did know that. Psycho was also based on a book Absolutely. by mm-hmm. Robert Block, who is also, Cole, speaking of horror staples, uh, Robert Block is very much a staple in the horror community. Did you know that The Invisible Man was a book? H.G. Wells is oh, a I staple of more sci-fi than horror, per se, True. but that's where we get at The Invisible Man. We've seen so many adaptations of a formula that I love very much, and it was based on a book called The Body Snatchers. So we've had Invasion of the Body Snatchers. We've had the 1978 version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. We had another one in the 80s. We had another one in the... 2000s with Nicole Kidman and Daniel Craig. And uh, I Am Legend is another book that... We've seen The Last Man on Earth and Omega Man and then the Will Smith, I Am Legend. Yeah. And then also, did you know that The Woman in Black was based on a book? It certainly Hmm. feels that way because it's gothic horror. It's in the very same vein as Turn of the Screw. It seems like it comes from the 1800s. Turns out, little did I know before, you know, Googling it, it's from the 1980s that this book was written. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. So are any of these books, in your opinions, superior to these, some of these films that are iconic? Hmm. Well, Jaws was kind of, it's like apples and oranges, you know, the book's really good. But the movie is good, too. It's just good in a different way. Interesting, because I didn't like the book. Right, there are aspects of the book that I that ruined it for me. I think you like Hmm. Jaws the movie too much to (laughs) enjoy Jaws the book because they're different. They're doing different things. We've had this conversation before, but there are certain choices that characters make when they make them. I can no longer root for them, and they're supposed to be the people that you're rooting for. And Jaws was would certainly be in that. Uh, in that camp, That's I love. Fair. I love it. I love it when there's no one you can really, really root yeah. for because they're all just kind of like they're all crummy people. Like that should be a staple of horror. You know, interesting. But... What about Psycho? Have you guys read Psycho? I've not. No. Psycho is a is a good book. So I think just like you said, Jaws is apples and oranges. I I think this is too. 
There's so much, obviously, to say about Alfred Hitchcock's movie, more than we could say in the few minutes that we have here today. But, you know, it's Alfred Hitchcock. It happens to be my favorite movie. But I, to your point about, well, you love Jaws so much, that's why you don't love the book. I actually really like the book Jaws as well. Or I also really like <laughs> the book Psycho as well. True or as false, Alfred Hitchcock bought up all the books so no one could read it before he released the movie. Is that true? No, that, that urban can't legend. be true. That's in the Hitchcock movie with Anthony Hopkins. I mean, I'm pretty so- sure he buys all the books so no one can know the story. Hitchcock legends are great. Like, he <laughs> wanted to kill off his main lead so early, so, like, if anyone came in late, he locked the theater door, <laughs> right? You couldn't get in if you were a little bit mm-hmm. late because he wanted to make that statement. There's There's a name in horror books and movies that we have to at least mention that we haven't already, and that's Stephen King, right? Because when you ask me what books are better than the movies— it's the answer for me is generally Stephen King. He's my favorite author. And because his books do not lend themselves the easiest to adaptation, because sometimes his books don't end particularly well, sometimes the stereotype is true. And in this case, it certainly is. Yeah. Um, I enjoy reading the first two thirds of Stephen King books more than I've ever enjoyed watching one of the movies based off of any of his works. Okay. I've actually enjoyed Dracula more than any of the movie adaptations that have been made. Bram Stoker's Dracula isn't good. Keanu read. Reeves' British accent. No, no. <laughs> but I think my favorite on this list, the one that I've read the most, read slash listened to the most, is The Body Snatchers by Jack Finney. And like I said, this has had four different movie adaptations, and they all have their own strong points to them. My favorite one, though, if you're looking for a good adaptation of The Body Snatchers, you've got to check out 1978's Invasion of the Body Snatchers starring Donald Sutherland, uh, Jeff Goldblum, and Leonard Nimoy. For the cast alone, <laughs> those three actors together, it's it's a winning formula. This is early scrawny Jeff Goldblum, by the way. Oh, yeah. But I, I don't want to give too much away, but one of, my, one of the best parts of the movie is... <laughs> And pointing and eyes, you know, folks real native back. to the internet are familiar with the gif mm-hmm. at the end of Invasion and you should of the see Body the face Snatchers. Jeff was just making because it was perfect impression. It really, it was. Oh, <laughs> such the one of the best endings to any horror movie comes from Invasion of the Body Snatchers. You talk about that having the multiple adaptation. My f- and your favorite is the middle one. My favorite I Am Legend is actually the first one with Vincent Price oh. doing Last Man on Earth. I haven't seen it. Which. Last Man on Earth, I was kind of hoping as I watched the first few episodes of The Last Man on Earth with Will Forte that they'd like make a little mention (laughs) of it. But I guess Will Forte's character is not exactly one you would have expected to see a movie from 1964. The the Last Man on Earth, when you watch it and and the later versions, uh, especially the Will Smith version, leans more into the zombie aspect. But. Zombies weren't really a thing until 68's, you know, Night of the Living Dead with George Romero. These were sure. vampires that were just kind of dumb vampires, right? They're, but they were clearly like garlic, don't look in the mirror, stake through the heart kills you, kind of like don't go out during the day. Vampires that as popular culture turned to love zombies more, we saw it turn into zombies in adaptation. It's interesting because I think we've just named a bunch of other horror novels that we would prefer to read over Uh, the turn turn of of the the screw. (laughs) But I can certainly appreciate some of the adaptations of the turn of the screw. And we've talked about a few of them here on the show today. 
and we've talked about some of the film adaptations of some of these wonderful horror novels over the years. This was a fun little book club. We should try this again where we all yes. like, read a book. Mm-hmm. I think that's good for you. <laughs> yes, or listen to it depending on how much time you have. It's reading. It counts. It's yes. really the same thing. Absolutely. Well, we've had a good time doing that, and when we return, we are so grateful that we're actually going to have some movie reviews to share with you. Believe it or not, there are some movies that are still coming out to the movie theater, still coming out for digital purchase or rental, and uh, we can't wait to tell you about them when we return here on Screen Cleaning. Screen Cleaning, you may remember that theme as the theme of our good friend Rod Gustafson, who is here in the studio with us. We'll try to keep the spooky train rolling because the reason we bring Rod in is to review new movies. And it's been about a month since we've done reviews because <laughs> it's been about a month since there's been anything <laughs> new to talk about. Um, but a couple of them are kind of scary, right? Yeah, yeah. And you're right, Cole. It has been a while since we've had a new movie. And uh, Jeff, you asked me before... We went on. Was it refreshing to go see a movie? It was, but the best part about Love and Monsters is it's a bit of a fresh concept, believe it or not. Imagine. I was surprised, you know, when I thought, okay, here we go, kind of a teenage monster movie. Well, first of all, they're a little older and teenagers, and so that kind of make, made the plot make a little bit more sense. And uh, it's there, an apocalypse has happened on the Earth, and, you know, there's a little bit of detail to that in the first couple of minutes in the movie. But bottom line is chemicals have rained down on the planet, and it killed off 95% of the humans. But for all the bugs and insects, it made them grow really, really big <laughs> and nice. mutate. So this is a special effects person's dream. Lots of <laughs> digital, big, huge bugs in this, which really was kind of fun. It really is giant snails and other bugs that I Attack couldn't Attack the 50 even foot, die. insert whatever here. Oh, you bet. <laughs> Everything's 50 foot. And so the humans, for the most part, are living underground in bunkers. But this is a story about uh, I, a guy and a girl who were living in, uh, I think it was Fremont, California, and they were just starting a beautiful little romantic relationship when the apocalypse happened, and they wound up getting separate, and they separated, and now they are in different colonies. But he discovers, because each colony has a ham radio, that his, the love of his life is about 80 miles away. And so he's determined that he's going to meet back up with her. He hasn't seen her in seven years. And his whole colony thinks he's nuts because for two reasons. First of all, anybody who goes up on the ground is going to get eaten by a giant bug. Second of all, this poor guy is absolutely terrified. He's not the type of guy that's just going to pull out a shotgun and go, I've got you, sucker. And that's not going to happen with this guy. He is, well, frankly, he's a lot like me. He is the chief cook and bottle washer in their in their colony underground. And so he handles kitchen duties. Everybody else is going out and fighting the bugs and bringing home the bacon, so to speak. So when he decides he's going to go on this trek to go see this girl, they figure he's going to be dead in no time. Well, I won't give away the ending, but (laughs) you can probably imagine where it's going. 
what interested me about this movie is, first of all, visually, it's super cool. Second of all, it it's scary. These bugs are scary, but they also interwine some humor in there, too. And they walk that fine line of turning into, into a really silly, stupid movie or being too serious and taking itself too seriously. And they're right down the middle, which really works really well, because one moment you're scared. And then the next moment, our hero protagonist, who is this uh, guy who's afraid of everything, he's managing to get through life. And that brings in a lot of comedy as well. So I I was pleasantly surprised. So this is rated PG-13. You know, for the most part, you want to heed the PG-13. Some kids slightly younger may be okay with this. Uh, not probably the biggest issue. There's a few swear words in here, but nothing too serious, amazingly. A little bit of sexual innuendo as well. Otherwise, though, it, I was surprised. This is a fun movie. Now I regret not uh, accepting the offer of all those older scout leaders to get some training on the ham radio. Mm -hmm. They always put that out there, and I never accepted. (laughs) When the apocalypse comes, I I have friends who are hams, ham radio operators, (laughs) and it's just like the people who buy the four-wheel drives who are just waiting for the day when they can say, this is why I've got this truck, and ham radio operators, they're going to save the world, too. The apocalypse. Rod, I've mostly avoided movies coming out to theaters because it seems like studios are just kind of dumping things Mm -hmm. out. Like after Tenant's middling failure, (laughs) uh, mostly studios have now shied away and we're just kicking the can down the road till the end of the pandemic, I guess, until we get, you know, the proper big budget movies. How can we go watch Love and Monsters. Well, is it you on could, streaming? Or actually, it... it's on streaming now, too. So okay. as far as I'm aware, when I looked at the schedule, I was surprised to find it in theaters. But it opened in theaters a couple of days before Friday, which is the day we're recording this, October the 16th. Okay. And now it's also available on streaming. And so and it's on it's it's one of these. It's a paid streamer. So it's on all the various platforms, iTunes, Google Play, whatnot, Amazon, where you can find it for I don't know what it's streaming for. I'm guessing five, six dollars something yep. in there. So yeah, I watched a couple Netflix movies ah. for my because I know where they're at. Netflix was planning on putting these out, pandemic or no, and so it feels like this is a solid like bar of quality. You know, they're not giving us a particularly bad movie just because of the times where like these are just mm-hmm. the movies that Netflix yeah. had in their back pocket. Yeah, uh, the first one I'll talk about is the spooky offering, I guess, and it's. The the newest Adam Sandler Netflix I think Happy you said Madison, quality. Uh, <laughs> juncture. Um, it's Hubie Halloween, and you know what? Not as bad as I thought it would be. That's a glowing Gosh. review right there. <laughs> Two we, in a row. Need we say more? <laughs> if, we might want to stop while we're ahead because it is not great. But the thing I would compare this to is Boo, a Medea Halloween, which I love, love, loved because it combines the Medea movies, which I enjoy perfectly fine. They're not winning any Oscars anytime soon, but I really enjoy getting together with Tyler Perry and his little gang of friends and watching a fun movie and Halloween, which I also really, really love here. We're getting Adam Sandler's friends getting together and Halloween also, and it worked out just fine. Like, it's not egregiously bad as most of his Netflix things have been. Okay. Hmm. Hubie Hmm. Halloween. Hmm. 
Yes. And it's only 100 minutes long. That's my favorite part about 95% of the Sandler movies. Yeah, it it was pretty tight. Like, (laughs) you combine comedy and horror, both are genres that tend to be leaner on the runtime, and it works out. There's plenty of laughs. I mean, there's plenty of, like, groaning laughs as well. It is an Adam Sandler movie that you're getting into. But it gives you a lot of what you got in, like, Prime Sandler, just not quite as funny. Sure. It's it's fine for what we're So PG-13 on that one. Cole, would you take your kids? Where are your kids, Cole? <laughs> Where, that's a question my parents have been asking for a few years yeah. now, but I guess so. I mean, it's it's not as crude, I think, as 90s Sandler, and yeah. so that's yeah. really the only place where it gets questionable. Certainly not too spooky for a 10-year-old or 11-year-old. So I understand the other movie you want to talk about is still kind of in the Halloween realm because you can watch mysteries around Halloween, right? And there's no more King of the Mystery. I mean, we talked all day today about a book turned into a movie and then other books turned into... It's a newest Sherlock Holmes thing. Uh, this one is focusing on his hitherto unknown about sister, Anola Holmes. <laughs> all right. And it's She's played by Millie Bobby Brown, who we all know from Stranger Things fame. She's really making her money right now, partnered with Netflix, talking about Adam Sandler doing the same thing. Um, We get Henry Cavill as Sherlock, and for a guy that has been this, you know, just macho, best-looking guy in the universe, kind of like Superman actor, he plays a little bit more of a held-back Sherlock much better than I thought he would. I huh. I got into this movie. It's certainly geared towards a younger audience than I am. Like, Anola herself, like Millie Bobby Brown, is like a 16-year-old girl. And I think this movie's aimed for 16-year-old girls. And I think that it works really well for that audience. I rolled my eyes a couple times because it's just kind of... It's got some juvenile, like stare right through the fourth wall kind of humor or or guidance through the story. But really, for getting girls excited about mysteries or, you know, Sherlock Holmes in general, you know, or or empowerment, whatever it is, it does all of that really well while having a really exciting, you know, story to guide it through. She's just looking for her mom. Awesome. Wow. How to market Sherlock Holmes to... To a 16-year-old girl. 16-year-old. I'll be watching watching both of those movies. And, uh, and, and maybe even Netflix, Love and Monsters. Right? Yeah, those are yeah, both on Netflix. Both of mine Netflix. on Netflix. Yep. So let me give you an alternative. Speaking of, of kid-friendly and family-friendly, let's talk about the number one movie in the United States and Canada right now, which is The War with <laughs> Grandpa, starring Robert De Niro. So weird, weird time in the box office. <laughs> and uh, this movie's based on the 1984 book of the same name by an author named Robert Kimmel Smith, who actually died earlier this year. It's about a widower who reluctantly moves in with his daughter's family, and this leaves his grandson without a bedroom, and he's forced to live in the attic. And so his grandson, Peter, promptly and officially, via an official-looking document, declares war on his grandpa unless he gets out of his room. Uh, Robert De Niro, this is a reminder to me that Robert De Niro just has some great comic timing, as does Christopher Walken, who is great at playing Christopher Walken, which he does he does here as well. And it's also kind of fun to see these veteran uh, these veteran actors kind of poking fun at their tough guy personas. Um, 
instead of dumping a, a body in the river, they're dumping a bully into a trash bin. Instead <laughs> of coercing a victim to go for a ride in the car, De Niro coerces his grandson to go for a ride in his Uber. Uh, and then they end up just going fishing. Um, instead of finding a horse head in his bed, De Niro finds a snake put there by his grandson. So they're clearly trying to make some parallels to some of other Robert De Niro's movies. I know that Robert De Niro was not in The Godfather, but he was in The Godfather Part Two. There are some really dumb, funny moments in here that you, you find yourself laughing, and no matter how dumb it is, and uh, there are actually some really good lines delivered perfectly by De Niro and, and Christopher Walken. Your kids are likely really going to love it, although at one point I looked over and my six-year-old looked a little concerned that, you know, there was this unhealthy behavior going on between this grandpa and this grandson. So I kind of had to reassure her, everything's going to be okay. These <laughs> movies are really predictable. It also features Uma Thurman, Cheech Marin, and Jane Seymour is in it as well. It's one of those movies where the preview is going to tell you exactly what kind of a movie it is. Like I said, totally predictable. And it was better than Trolls World Tour, one of the other notable kids' movies out this year. I love Trolls World Tour for what it's worth. Interesting you brought up the preview, Jeff, because way back, three and a half years ago, when I was still working at Parent Previews, we were tracking this movie. That movie was supposed to release in April 2017. These are the kind of movies 2020 is giving us in the Well, it's been shelved so many times. And in fact, I remember watching the trailer back then, and it was much more of an edgy movie than it is now. So they Mm. have... Boy, this movie's been through the movie blender many times <laughs> and the, chopped and re, reassembled. And audiences are really liking it. I mean, I, it's yeah. number one at the box office, which because isn't saying much right now. To watch. But yeah. but the audience scores are actually pretty good. Because so, our expectations are tempered. Because yeah. it's oh, twenty. Cool. Oh, it's definitely on, cool. better than the next movie that I want to talk about. <laughs> well, so you're six, you mentioned all these references, right? Your six year old appreciated the Godfather, like. References like that the horse head and over her like, head. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Hubie Halloween had a lot of those as well, and I wondered like this again with Adam Sandler. It's very juvenile humor, and so mm-hmm. there were times where I wondered what this movie was really geared toward, other than like me, a mid twenties guy that watches a ton of horror movies, but also likes to laugh at fart jokes. Like it, it, mm. it's that perfect little crossover where I understand, hey. They're doing a Michael Myers Halloween thing there. And then in the very next scene, he's getting candy thrown at his face. That's that's the kind of Adam Sandler movie I got. Oh, boy. Oh, so boy. The other movie I want to talk about is a movie called Two Hearts. And uh, I just want to give you the premise courtesy of IMDb because I think it, it segues really well into what I want to talk about. For two couples, the future unfolds in different decades and different places. But a hidden connection will bring them together in a way no one could have predicted. Let me just say right off the bat that you will predict how these two couples are going to interconnect. I mean, just look at the title right there and listen to the tagline from the film's poster. Discover the mystery that connects them all. Really, the only mystery here is is why the movie was called Two Hearts. It probably would have been more appropriate as Two Lungs because one of these young men uh, needs he needs new lungs. Right. And so Mm. uh, my the whole time, the mystery for my wife and me was, why is this movie called Two Hearts? It doesn't make any sense. 
And uh, the movie means well. I want to I want to try to stay positive before I talk about some of the beef that I have with the movie. It means well. And really, aside from one really brief, strong language moment, there's there's not much objectionable language in the movie for a PG-13 movie, which is great. Unfortunately, the acting is a little stale and the chemistry is not there between either couple. And the dialogue is just bland and doesn't really go anywhere. Um, Yeah, my wife and I just kept saying, these are conversations. These are not conversations that normal people have. Hmm. Um, and about an hour into the film, the rug kind of gets pulled out from you in a way that really doesn't make any sense. And it leads you to believe that they were just trying to fill time. And, you know, they were about 20 or 30 minutes shy of what mark they were trying to meet. And so they were just filling it uh, by, having twist. This, by having this twist in there that didn't really make any sense. And... If I had to give a spoiler for this movie, by the end, I was I was a little disappointed that I realized that what I was watching for the last hour and 40 minutes was just a campaign to recruit do- uh, organ donors. Hmm. And yeah. uh, so it, there wasn't really anything remarkable, remarkable about it, even though it was based on a true story. But there are so many other organ donor stories that I I imagine could have been more interesting and compelling Maybe even this true story was more compelling than what they put on the screen because it really didn't warrant an hour and 40-minute movie. But I've already signed up to be an organ donor, so they're preaching to the choir (laughs) is another thing I would say about this movie. Load up your Amazon Prime subscription and go find Return to Me from 2000, David Duchovny and Minnie Driver. That is a great movie. That's a great organ donor romance. And not based based on a true story, but a much, much better movie. One of my favorite romantic comedies. Carol O'Connor in it. Oh, gosh, I loved Carol O'Connor in that movie. Well, Rod, we are so grateful that you could go see Love and Monsters, and I think Cole and I have been convinced that we need to go check it out. Right, Cole? I mean, I'll from the comfort of my own home. <laughs> okay. All right. Thanks, Rod. It's great to have you here. It was great being here. Thanks so much, guys. There haven't been a ton of 2020 movies that I can honestly say that I've been meaning to watch, but that does bring us into our next segment here on Screen Cleaning. Huh. huh. I've I've been been meaning meaning to to watch watch that. that. Well, Cole, this is a great time of year to talk about movies that we've been meaning to watch because of all the horror movies that you and I have both seen, there are still plenty out there that we have not seen. And one that you gave a glowing review to that I have not seen that is on Netflix currently. I don't have any excuses uh, other than I just have been meaning to watch it, haven't gotten around to it, and it's Train to Busan, which is a PG-13 zombie movie. So a PG-13 zombie movie I've got to check out. Zombie movies in general aren't really my thing, but I've heard great things about this movie, so I will check it out by next week. You've heard those great things mainly from me because this is my favorite serious zombie movie. There are plenty of funny zombie movies out there. This is my favorite serious take. For me, this reminds me of when we did the rom-com episode of I've Been Meaning to Watch It, and it was very easy for me to find one that I had not (laughs) seen before. But for you, you had to dig a little deeper. For me, we had to kind of expand the genre of horror just a little bit because I watch a lot of horror 
but for me, one that I've been meaning to watch and that we even did a whole episode about this director and I still didn't get around to watching is Tim Burton's Mars Attacks. With an exclamation point. Mars Attacks. Yes. And yeah, this is that science fiction B-horror movie subgenre, right? Mm -hmm. That uh, I can't wait for you to see. It's got so many famous people in it, and uh, what they do with those famous people is just delightful. And this came out, I I believe, in 1996 when I was 13. Perfect age for me to see this movie. I remember seeing it at the Dollar Theater and just absolutely loving it. So we had both been meaning to watch these movies. We will this week, and then next week we will review them, see what we thought, see if it was worth the wait. Yeah, and there's another thing that we need to announce. It's not on next week's show, but it'll come out in November, and we need to prep everybody now for it because it's kind of going to be a big deal. Right, Cole? It always is when we do a bracket here on Screen Cleaning. It's been far too long, and it is time again to do a bracket. If you are unfamiliar with this concept, it started a few years ago in March when we talked about the best sports movies, and we thought, hey— We should put them into a bracket. It's March Madness, you know, college basketball time. We thought that would fit. And then we liked it so much and we got so much interaction with some of our listeners and some of our coworkers here around BYU Broadcasting that we brought the bracket back for a Halloween episode. If you're craving one of those, you can dive back into the podcast this month. There's also a Marvel movie bracket around the time Endgame came out and a Trilogies bracket. That was the other one that we did. Do you happen to remember which... Scary movie one. I think it was the Great Pumpkin oh, Charlie. It was Brown. not, but don't spoil okay. it because we want our audience to go. Oh yeah, and, go and back and listen, listen to, to the it. podcast. It's, sure. I will tell you, it's not. It's the Great Pumpkin Charlie Brown. It's something else. I think it made the finals. That's possible. We will give you that much. <laughs> but this time, we we've decided to do a TV bracket, which we've never done before, and which is really a bigger undertaking than anything else that we did before that, because. There are so many episodes and so many hours of TV to watch and so many TV shows. And this time, you know, to keep it family friendly, there are certainly a lot of shows that would be worthy of a bracket that we really don't talk very much about here on Screen Cleaning. So we're staying safely in the sitcom category. Because you can all use a little respite. After after Halloween and October is over, once you've watched all your scary movies, we're here to bring you right back up and talk about funny, goofy sitcoms. And if the pandemic and everything's been bringing you down, or if you think you've watched just about everything left on your queue, watch a couple sitcoms, remember how to laugh, and then pick your favorite sitcoms on screen cleaning. So go to our podcast page on BYU Radio uh, and on every single podcast from now until the first weekend in November, we will have a little link for you to go fill out your bracket um, and enter to win. Yes, that is exciting. We'll give you more information as as each week uh, goes by. And in the meantime, Cole, we need to do a little panning for good. Like always. There's good in them dire hills. (laughs) Today's theme was certainly book adaptations and horror into movies and how those adaptations work. We saw that some adaptations do work better than others. And so to pan for some good right now, we try to look past, like look for some of the, the deeper cuts and with 
a new TV series coming out very soon, Lovecraft Country. I want to give a little bit of love to the horror writings of H.P. Lovecraft, one of the grandfathers of modern horror. Unfortunately, he's not as well known in movie circles because a lot of his movies end up not translating really well, and that's a function of the adaptation. So H.P. Lovecraft is known for these weird concepts and how what you can't see is scarier, what you can imagine is scarier than what you can actually see. And so he often describes in great flowery language just these concepts that you can't fully picture, and that's really terrifying. But then when you make a movie about it, you got to picture something. And so you put something (laughs) on the screen and it doesn't quite work out. Like he works and operates in that area that just can't be adapted. And so talking about horror adaptations, I thought this was a fun way to kind of bring the show around. So just stick to the book is what you're saying when it comes to H.P. Lovecraft. And another, I mean, talking about the imagination and the theater of the mind working in these weird horror or, or just abstract kind of ways podcasts can be scary as well outside the movie realm and an a lovecraftian right he's his own genre now kind of podcast is welcome to night vale which you could never make into a movie because what they describe on that podcast is abstract and it doesn't quite add up and you can't really picture what it is because they describe things that can't exist in the real world but sometimes that's scarier than just seeing the blood and guts. Which is interesting because I did read that uh, FX is making a TV series out of that podcast. Of course they are. (laughs) Because money can be made. But I'm telling you, it won't quite be as good as what you can read or what you can hear. Yeah. We talked about some older horror movies, older horror novels. And actually, in two weeks' time, we are going to pose the question... Do older horror movies hold up to this day? We've had this conversation before with with uh, older TV television shows, shows sure. right? Mm-hmm. But we thought it would be a fun Halloween twist to talk about do Halloween old horror movies stand up to this day? And that's going to be our big Halloween show that you can access on Halloween. Halloween is a Saturday this year. I mentioned the theater of the mind, and just next week on Screen Cleaning, we're going to talk about spooky theater. So that's your next three weeks of Screen Cleaning. You know, once we get to November, we're doing a sitcom bracket. You got a lot to, to be excited for. That's going to do it for this episode of Screen Cleaning. We are here each and every week on BYU Radio. Be sure to Google Screen Cleaning Podcast where you can find over a 100 episodes of our show right at your fingertips that you can take on the go with you. Until next time, I'm Jeff Simpson. And I'm Cole Wissinger. And this is Screen Cleaning. Screen Cleaning.